Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Hebrews in chapter 5. Hebrews in chapter 5. I want to read verses 1 through 10. Hebrews, please, in chapter 5. Hear the word of God. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I want eventually to make it and to concentrate our attention on verses 7 through 9, but let me set this up. That is, you remember that the question, at least I think that the author of Hebrews is asking here, is this, can Jesus be trusted as our high priest and therefore the source of our eternal salvation. Can Jesus be trusted as our high priest and thus the source of our eternal salvation? Now this is a very serious question. Because wrapped up in it is our eternal destiny. Because you see, if he is the source of our eternal salvation and we do not place our trust in him, then we've missed that which for all eternity is of most value, crucial to us. And if he isn't the source of our eternal salvation and we do place our trust in him, then the question must be what will we we have missed by trusting him? So it's a very serious question. And it's very serious too because we must ask what it means to trust Christ as our high priest. When we consider what it means to trust Christ as our high priest, we see, again, its seriousness. First, it must mean this, that God exists, and that we must acknowledge Him, and that we must be accepted by Him in order to have life. You see, if Jesus, in fact, is the source of our eternal salvation, given all that He was and that He said, then God must exist, and we must acknowledge Him, and and we must be accepted by God if we're to have life. But if indeed Jesus is our high priest and we trust him such, then it means that we need someone to stand for us before God, that we're incapable of standing before God alone in and of ourselves. That's what a priest does, by the way. I mean, a priest is a bridge builder. A priest is one who stands in between. Uh, Religiously speaking, uh, a priest is one who makes sacrifices because there's a breach between God and people. 
And thus the priest comes to make atonement, to make right, to satisfy God in such a way that he'll accept the people. And so you see, when we trust Jesus as our high priest, what we're trusting is this. When I trust Jesus as my high priest, what I'm trusting is this, that he goes before God on my account. And then God turns and looks to me and says, Bill, because of him, because of Jesus, you're forgiven and I accept you. See, that's, that's this high priest. And so what it means is that, that I'm trusting Jesus, no one else. I'm not trusting myself. I'm not trusting any other philosophy. I, I don't think there's any other way. It's just through him. He's the source of my eternal salvation because he is my high priest. He's the one who stands for me. And, and it means this too, that we must believe this, that is, we must take it by faith, because you see, I've never seen Jesus. And I've never seen what he did. In fact, those even to whom the author of Hebrews was writing is unlikely to have seen Jesus or experienced, witnessed the crucifixion. In fact, even those who did witness the crucifixion of Jesus, how would they know when he died on the cross on that day that he was dying for the sins of sinners? How, how would that even have looked I mean, there was a person being crucified on his left, a person being crucified on his right. Jesus in the middle, they all died. How would we know that this one in the middle, when he was dying, was atoning for the sins of sinners? How would we know unless someone who knows would come and tell us that's what took place at that event, at that time, that transaction? And so you see, we must take it on the testimony of those who've heard from Jesus himself after he rose from the dead. And the mystery of the Holy Spirit at work in us to convince us. So we take it by faith. How else could it be? How, no one saw that transaction other than Jesus. But you see, this has very serious, deep implications for us. Whether or not Jesus is our high priest and the source of our eternal salvation. Because you see, as I said before, our whole eternal destiny is wrapped up in it. But not only that, our whole present is wrapped up in it as well. Because when I believe, when I trust that Jesus is my high priest, then you see I have assurance that I am accepted by God. And not only that, that I'm trusting and believing that God will transform me. Because to believe that Jesus is my high priest means that I sink my all in him. That he represents me before God, holy and just. That he represents me before God, most high. That he represents me before the only one whose opinion matters. And so if I'm trusting him, I'm, I'm sinking my whole in him. I'm thinking he's the one that's acceptable to you. And thus I'm trusting that God, even in his graciousness, will transform me to be like him in the way that I think, in the way that I act, in the way that I speak, and my very character, you see. And so everything is tied up, caught up, submitted to Jesus, and I'm trusting that I will be transformed. And so, when I'm trusting Jesus as my high priest, the source of my eternal salvation, I'm saying that my whole lot is sunk in him. My whole life is captivated by him. My whole being is submitted to him. And there is no one else to whom I look. There's no one else but Christ alone. Now, you see, the author of Hebrews is building all of this on his understanding, you see, of what has been revealed to him through the Scripture, uh, through the Old Testament Scriptures particularly. Because he, he understands 
that God created us and he made us human beings to be valuable. And we're valuable because we're created in God's image. And our call, the reason for our being, is to glorify God, to reflect him. That's, what's, that's, that's what makes us valuable, that we're in his image. And we're to reflect him, meaning that we're to, to give him the due that he's deserved. To reflect the glory of God means that, that we're to give him the honor that he deserves. And the honor that he deserves is, is our unbridled submission and love and worship. Now Adam and Eve, our first parents, the author of Hebrews would know, fell. That is, they sinned. They, they didn't honor God as they should. They didn't give him his due. They did not submit to him in all things. And that sin then infiltrates all of the human race. But God, you see, made a promise, the author of Hebrews knows, that he would send someone to redeem, to save. And thus God begins history, if you will, by creating everything that would make preparation for Jesus to come. He established a people. He called a people to himself to say, I'm going to have a people that will be mine. He gave them a land to say that there will be a land in which I will dwell with my people for all of eternity. And then he built a structure and he says you'll have kings and the kings will remind you that you need a righteous one to lead you. You'll have prophets because that will remind you that you need uh, someone to speak to you the very word of God and you need a priest who will stand before me on your behalf, God says, so that you'll be acceptable to me. They'll make sacrifices. They'll make atonement so that, that I'll be able to accept you and we can live together, you as my people, me as your God on this land for all eternity. Now, the author of Hebrews writes all of this, you remember, because he looks out at this group of people to whom he writes, and he gets a sense that though they've made profession of faith, they're drifting, that their focus is shifting, that their hearts are cooling, that their minds are becoming distracted, that their love is becoming fickle, that their hope is dying. And even though they've made a profession of faith, still they're drifting away. And he's thinking, if only I can give them a new glimpse. If only I could tell them again. If only I could remind them. If only that I could cast their attention upon Jesus. Then their, their faith will be renewed. And they'll stop drifting. And their hearts will stop cooling. And their, their minds will not be distracted. And their focus will not be shifting. And all of that. But yet they'll come to me. And they'll trust. And what is so serious to us is that here we are centuries later on this particular Sunday reading this stuff. And so we have to get the suspicion that what we need on an ongoing way is a glimpse of Jesus. We need to consider him. We need to meditate upon him. We need to see him so that we won't drift, so that our hearts won't cool, so that our minds won't become distracted, so that our focus won't shift, that we really will find ourselves captivated in him and trusting him and him alone. And so here we go, asking this question, can Jesus really be trusted to be our high priest and the source of our eternal salvation? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us you need to understand something about priests. We've done this, but one more time. He says that priests are, are chosen by God, taken from among the people. They're chosen by God. They don't seek it on their, on their own because they know that this is too great for any of them. And so, so God chooses and they come in humility. And they come out of the people so that they'll be sympathetic with the people. They'll, they'll share the same weaknesses of the people. And so when the people come to the high priest and say, will you represent me before God? They say, sure. Will you even represent me a sinner? Oh, sure, I understand what that's like. I understand the temptation. I understand the weakness. I understand what it's like to be you. And then I will represent you before 
before God. And so they'll be able to deal gently. They'll be approachable. So the question is, is Jesus really like us? Can he really do that? Can he really be our high priest? The author of Hebrews has already said that he's been made like his brothers in every way, yet without, without sin. In the mystery of the incarnation, the Holy One, God, becomes God in the flesh. He takes on human nature to experience what it's like to live a human life. And he says, yes, he's like us. He's my son. And you say, well, can he really represent me as high priest? Because there's one slight little problem here. And that is that priests <clears throat> were born of the family of Aaron, <clears throat> of the tribe of Levi. Jesus wasn't. Jesus was born of the family of David, the tribe of Judah. So how could he be a priest? Well, he says, God does. <clears throat> Not to worry. I've made, a, I've made that all right because he's of the priesthood of a man by the name of Melchizedek. Now, we won't talk about that until we get to chapter 7. But just so if it's worrying you, there isn't any ancestral problem here with Jesus being our high priest. God has already made account for that. Back to the question, is he like us? The author of Hebrews says this, notice how he prays. He says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up, that is offered up as priest, offered up, Prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Now, why would Jesus pray? Uh, that's just an astounding thing, the very Son of God. Why would, he, why would he pray? Why wouldn't he just come in power and do what he did? Why would he pray? And I think this, because as I mentioned at the offering time, Jesus never forgot that in the incarnation and coming as God in the flesh, that when he took on human flesh, he became utterly dependent upon his Father for everything. He was never distracted from that. He was never deluded into thinking that there were a moment in time that he didn't need his Father for his next breath, for the strength to overcome all that he was being tempted. And so, on the one hand, Jesus prayed because he, he knew that he was utterly dependent on his Father. Prayers throw, cast themselves upon God for help and for strength and thus he would do that, and he did that often. There were nights, the scripture said, that Jesus spent in prayer. But not only that, not only did Jesus know of his awareness, or be aware of the fact that he was dependent upon his Father for everything, but he knew the great danger he and human beings were in. He knew the great danger of the enemy. He knew the great danger of Satan. He knew it firsthand because he had experienced the temptation, as you remember, in the wilderness. He knew it, that Satan was strong, and, and Satan was after him, if you will. And so he knew the danger that he was in. And not only that, Satan never stopped hounding him, though it may not have been uh, a frontal attack as it was in the wilderness in every occasion. Uh, there were all of the comments of people that were derogatory and the criticisms and the questions and the testings, all that came from people. In fact, even his own disciples spoke on behalf of Satan and Jesus revealed that to him. You may remember on the time when Peter said, oh, they'll never crucify you. And rather than Jesus saying, Peter, shut up. He said, get behind me, Satan. Because he knew all the time that Satan was after him. And not only that, Jesus knew the weakness of human beings. He saw it. He saw it in the conditions of misery that sin had caused in the lives of people. And not only that, but he saw death. And for, death, and for Jesus, death was the enemy. 
It was something to conquer. It was that which was a reminder, a manifestation of the judgment of God, death. And so when Jesus saw death, he recoiled from it. He was repulsive to him. When he saw his friend Lazarus had died and was there with the others, he wept. But not only that, the scripture says that he let out a loud sigh. And that wasn't a sigh simply of resignation or a sigh of sadness. But there's a sense in which it was a sigh of anger that Jesus was saying, this shouldn't be. And you remember that when he reflected upon Jerusalem and how they had rejected him as the Messiah, and he knew the implications of that, he knew the eternal implications of that. For them and the, what would come, he wept. But no doubt the author of Hebrews is referring to that time in the life of Jesus when he came most close to death himself. That night in the Garden of Gethsemane, as those days approached, you get this sense of Jesus increasingly becoming aware of his own death. In fact, it was only a few days before when he said to his disciples, my soul is troubled. And he was thinking about his own death. And then you remember when he came to that Garden of Gethsemane with Peter, James, and John, and he said to them, now, I want you to pray because this is a time of great temptation, great weakness. So I want you to pray. And Jesus went off by himself to pray. And you remember how it is that he poured out his heart. He, he said, Father, my heart is sorrowful even unto death. That is, he felt like he was going to die right there. Luke tells us that Jesus was in such agony, and he uses that word agony, that Jesus was in such agony. I like the word agony because when you say it, you feel it. He was in such agony that sweat poured off him like drops of blood. B.B. Uh, Warfield, uh, an old dead guy from the turn of the century, wrote perhaps what may be, if isn't one of the few, certainly the best pieces entitled The Emotional Life of Our Lord. Not too many people have tackled such a subject to talk about the emotions of Jesus. And he writes of this night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me read you a couple of paragraphs. Sit, please, and listen. He says, His deep agitation, that is, Jesus' deep agitation, was clearly, therefore, not due to mere recoil from the physical experience of death. You know, it wasn't that Jesus, when he was in the Garden, it wasn't the agony, wasn't simply, or even primarily, that he, he was going to stop breathing, particularly, or that his heart might stop beating, or that he was going to be beaten and have to face all of that. That wasn't what caused him to agonize there. People have faced such without such agony. It was because of what Jesus knew. Warfield puts it this way. His deep agitation was clearly, therefore, not due to mere recoil from the physical experience of death. Behind death, he saw him who has the power of death, and that sin which constitutes the sting of death, this whole being revolted from that final and deepest humiliation in which the powers of evil were to inflict upon him the precise penalty of human sin. You see, what Jesus saw in the Garden of Gethsemane was hell. And as a human being, he saw the judgment of God. That's what caused him to recoil. That's what caused him his agony. To bow, Warfield says, 
His head beneath this stroke was the last indignity, the hardest act of that obedience which it was his to render in his servant form and which we're told with significant emphasis ended up to death. So profound a repugnance to death and all that death meant manifesting itself during his life could not fail to seize upon him with peculiar intensity at the end. If the distant prospects of his sufferings was a perpetual Gethsemane to him, and what Warfield means by that is that he always knew he was going to die. And he always had this in the back of his mind. And as he became closer to it, it became in the forefront of his mind. In fact, Jesus was, in a sense, we could say, agonized by death itself. You know, when Jesus saw death, he brought life. He knew it was the enemy, yet he knew it would, he would face it. And he knew what he would be facing when he faced death wasn't simply physical but spiritual. It would be condemnation. It would be the wrath of God upon sin. That's what caused him to agonize. If the distant prospect of his sufferings was a perpetual Gethsemane to him, the immediate imminence of them in the actual Gethsemane could not fail to bring with it that awful and dreadful torture which Calvin does not scruple to call the exordium or the beginnings of the pains of hell themselves. Matthew and Mark almost exhaust the resources of language to convey to us some conception of our Lord's agony. The anguish of reluctance which constituted this agony is in part described by them both by a term primarily, by a, by a term the primary idea of which is loathing, aversion, perhaps not unmixed with despondency. The term is adjoined in Matthew's account to the common word for sorrow, in which, however, Here the fundamental element of pain, distress is prominent so that we may perhaps render Matthew's account. He began to be distressed and despondent. Instead of this wide word for distress of mind, Mark employs a term which more narrowly defines the distress as consternation, if not exactly dread, yet alarmed dismay. He began to be appalled and despondent. Both accounts add to our Lord's own declaration, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death, the central term in which expresses a sorrow, or perhaps we would better say, a mental pain, a distress, which hems in on every side and from which there is no escape, or rather which presses in and besets from every side and therefore leaves no place for defense. The extremity of this agony may have been revealed by sweating drops like clots of blood on the ground in which the horror of death and the ardor of obedience met. That's what Jesus faced. And that was his prayer, and that was his agony. Now you see, it's at that moment that Jesus was being our high priest. Because you may say, why is it that Jesus was so upset? I mean, he had no sin. Why couldn't he face death um, without worry? You see, there are only two people who can die in peace. Christians and fools. And I mean the latter in the biblical sense. Christians because they trust that Jesus has already taken the judgment of God. Fools because the Bible says that in their hearts fools believe there is no God. And you see, if you think there's no God and you're really convinced of it, then you would say there's no judgment. And if there's no judgment, death may be sad, it may be disruptive, but it isn't necessarily frightful. No, it's a false peace but peace nonetheless. But you see, as Jesus faced death for us, 
that there was no avoiding judgment. That's what it meant to be our high priest. On the one hand, he was to take our sins before God, to wear them, if you will, to take the guilt upon himself. And that's what he was seeing at that moment in time, that he would experience hell. And even as our high priest, he responded to it precisely as a rational human being should respond to death. You see, a rational human being with no high priest dying should be filled with fear and agony because of what's to come. And a rational human being should be able to look down the corridor of that moment in time and say, I don't want to go there. I don't want this to happen. And so on that night that Jesus was praying, that was his prayer. He says, Father, all things are possible with you. Therefore, if there's any way possible at all, may this cup pass from me. I mean, if he would have gone nonchalantly, we would have wondered, Jesus, you're not representing me as you face judgment. Nobody could face judgment going poo-poo. He really knew it. And he really agonized. And he says, Father, if there's any other way that, 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 that this, this could happen, that people could be saved, that you could be glorified, if there's any other way, please make that happen because I've seen what's to come and no rational person would ever want to go there. No rational person would ever want to sit under your wrath. No rational person would ever, ever want to receive your judgment. So if there's any other way, please, I, I see the depths of it now. Like perhaps never before. At that moment, he's being our high priest. If you want to say, as Jesus like us, you better well believe it because, you see, he's experienced more of humanity than you and I would ever know because he faced not only physical death, but he faced the very judgment of God. Does Jesus know sin? Oh, yes, not experientially in the sense that he sinned, but certainly in its ramifications and its implications and its consequences, that is, more deeply than any human being has ever experienced at this side of their own death. Because you see, he's experienced the very wrath of God. He knows what it's like. He knows our weakness. He knows our dependence. He knows our need. He knows what it is that we must be saved from, you see. It's at that moment that he's representing us purely, perfectly. Scripture says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And you may say, but but, but he died. Uh, Does that mean his prayer wasn't answered? No. The next line in our passage is this, but he was heard because of his reverence. Now that's very important that our high priest was heard. A high priest that is not heard is really not very helpful because what you want him to be is heard. What you want him to be is accepted. What you want him to be is received on your behalf. And the scripture says that he was in fact heard because of his reverence. You see, he was saved from death. The scripture delineates between the first death and the second death. The first death is physical death. The second death is spiritual death, eternal death, the wrath of God. And Jesus was saved in himself for himself, the second death. And how do we know that? He rose from the dead. He's alive. So God did save him, didn't he? And he saves us as well. You believe in him. 
But isn't it interesting that the scripture said that Jesus was heard because of his reverence? And how do we pick that up? We pick that up because he says, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, please let it pass. But not my will, your will. That is, God, Father, if there's any way that you can be glorified without me having to go to hell on behalf, experience hell on behalf of these people, then please. If there's any way that they can be saved without me having to experience this cross and, and all of its implications and death and all of its implications, if there's any way possible for them uh, to be saved, uh, please, would you, would you allow that? Would you grant that? But, but if not, if there's no other way, if this is the only way for you to be glorified, if this is the only way for them to be saved, then, Father, I'll suffer, I'll go. And there's a sense in which we can say that he went not resigned to go, but joyfully. We'll read later in the book of Hebrews that it was for the joy that was sent before him. Now, when we speak of that kind of joy, he wasn't laughing. He wasn't giddy about it. But there was this sense of purpose, this sense of security, this sense of assurance that this was the only way, the right way, and this was pleasing to God. And, and I don't want to put words in the mind or the mouth of Jesus at all, but I get the suspicion that as he was going to the cross, and even as he was there, he's thinking to himself, this is the only way. My father says, this is the only way. My father said, this is no other way for him to be glorified, for people to be saved, other than for me to, to die and to face this condemnation on behalf of these people. Therefore, I'll go. Therefore, I will do this. Therefore, I will submit. Therefore, he was heard because of his reverence. That was his heart. Not my will, but yours. Now, I hate to take our focus at all off Jesus as our high priest, but I, I want to make this particular application because I think it might be helpful. And that is this, I wonder about my own prayer life as I consider Jesus' prayer life. I mean, this passage really is about Jesus, our high priest. Don't lose that, but, but it makes me pause to think about our own praying. And I wonder if my prayerlessness and your prayerlessness is in part because we don't understand life the way Jesus did. I mean, he prayed. I mean, Scripture says he prayed all night long at times. So much did he pray that his disciples came and said, could you teach us how to do that? We, we notice how you're doing that and, and that you do do that. So could you teach us how to pray? I wonder if my prayerlessness is because I don't see life the way Jesus does, that, that I really don't realize that I'm utterly dependent upon God for everything. That I've become accustomed to just stuff. And I've become accustomed to breath, and I've become accustomed to a certain life. Oh, there's bumps and beeps and so forth and so on. But by and large, I get up in the morning, and, and I can go the whole day without thinking about God, without praying. And things just sort of happen. You know, the toast pops up, and I get to work, and the car works, and all those kinds of things, generally. And I forget that that isn't natural. That's by the hand of God. And, and perhaps it's because I don't see the danger that I'm in. Perhaps I don't see the danger that I'm in because of the evil one lurking. Perhaps I don't really realize that he is roaming around like a roaring lion seeking to eat me up. Perhaps I don't see that. You know as well as I do that we pray most and we're most passionate about our praying when times are really hard and when things are going bad and when life is really good then it seems that such wanes. But when life goes bad we call people to pray, we get on our knees, we group together and we pray. But Jesus, you see, knew all of that all the time and I need to be reminded, I need to be convinced of the danger 
and my dependence. Not only that, I wonder about my own reverence. I mean, I can make a long list of things for God to do. And I would rather like him to do it. And if he doesn't, I'll be rather sad. But I wonder, no matter how much I say, if my heart really is reverent before him. It's not that I say irreverent things or things I shouldn't say when I'm praying. But is my heart really such to say, God, whatever your will is here, if your will is for me to suffer, I will joyfully suffer. If your will really is not to give me a job, but to keep me unemployed, I will joyfully be unemployed for this time. If, if your will really isn't to heal me at the moment, I'll joyfully stay sick. If your will really isn't to find me a companion, I will stay joyfully alone. I wonder about, about my own heart and my reverence toward him. Because you see, what I think we see here as well as a model for how we're to pray, especially in times of distress. Remember, Jesus started his prayer by saying, Father, with you all things are possible. He recognized the sovereignty of God. He recognized that he was praying to the one who could make all things happen in accordance with his will. I mean, he wasn't praying to someone weak. And it wasn't the Father's fault that the Son was in this predicament in the sense that it wasn't that the Father had stopped looking for a moment and, "Uh uh-oh, now something bad has happened. And so we're to pray in the same way. We're to begin by acknowledging, by knowing in our own hearts that God is sovereign, that he is king, that all things are possible with him. And then Jesus laid out the need. He says, listen, I'm a rational human being. I'm looking at this situation and really no one in the right mind would want to experience hell and your wrath. And therefore, could you please take that away? That wasn't an ungodly thing to pray. It wasn't a lack of faith thing to pray. It was a rational thing to pray. And so people who are sick pray for healing. Of course. People who have work pray for a job. People who are lonely pray for a companion. People who are in trouble pray to be relieved from that trouble. People who are suffering pray to relieve from that suffering. But then you see we have to add on in the reverence of our own heart and the sincerity of our own praying to be able to pray this too. But God, if the best way for you to be glorified, if the only way for me to be made holy is to experience this suffering, then I'll experience this suffering with joy. But Jesus, of course, was our perfect high priest, so he represented us perfectly at this very need of the moment. As any human being would, he took on this prayer with loud cries and tears, even as he faced the judgment of God. Then the text goes on to say, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. An interesting expression. Again, we realize that Jesus' suffering had two very important implications for him. On the one hand, it enabled him to identify with us. He suffered as we suffer. He he understands our suffering. But also in the midst of the suffering, you see, he was able to be obedient. And the truth of the matter is, we all know that that's the real test of obedience. The real test of, tests of obedience do not come on good days. You know, when the kids sleep all night and we feel really good and the refrigerator's stocked and all of that, it's really pretty easy, at least outwardly, to be obedient. We don't really struggle with that. But when things go tough, when things are hard, then we learn obedience. We learn what it's really like to be obedient. And Jesus learned obedience 
It wasn't that he didn't know anything about obedience at all, but he experienced obedience. He proved his obedience in the things through the things by which he suffered. Uh, can we question at all Jesus' purity? No. Why? Because he faced the toughest command. Die. Not because you deserve to die. Die. Because they deserve to die. And in dying, experience the wrath of God. He did. Could you ever doubt again his obedience, his perfection, his purity? And you see, by that, the author of Hebrews then goes on to say, and being made perfect, it isn't that he was imperfect, that is sinful, but he needed now to be qualified, to be made, to be the perfect high priest, one just like the people experienced, just what they've experienced, to know people, to be able to represent them. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Now this is what catches me. I expect him to say at this point, and became the source of eternal salvation to all those who believe in him. Now, that would make perfect sense to me, but he doesn't say that. He says, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Why that? I mean, isn't salvation by grace through faith? It isn't of ourselves, our own works, but it's a gift of God. Why does he say obey? Two reasons. Number one, is that believing the gospel is a command. I read to you in the beginning that the announcement part of our service was from 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. So this is his command, that, be, that we believe in his Son, Jesus Christ. It's a command. In fact, I had to correct my manuscript in my first, probably my first four drafts of this sermon. I, I had this sentence, and the sentence was from a previous part of the sermon that I've already passed, but the sentence was, what does it mean for Jesus, I'm sorry, what does it mean for the author of Hebrews to ask us to trust Jesus as our high priest and the source of our eternal salvation? And finally, about the sixth reading of that, I said, that's wrong. He isn't asking us. He's telling us. He's commanding us. And so that's why when Paul, if you read the book of Romans this week, which I would encourage you to do just because it's good to do, uh, on a number of occasions, he says, obey the gospel. Why? Because it's a command to believe. It isn't a suggestion. It isn't an asking. He says, obey. So he's able to say for those who, to those who obey, because to obey is to believe. But not only that, we must realize that there is no faith in Christ apart from following him. I mean, to believe in him as our high priest means that we sink our all in him. Now, we don't do that perfectly. Of course but our heart's desire as we come to him, as we trust him, we say, you're the one. You're the one who can, who can represent me before God. You're the one in whose image I'll be transformed. And so there is no belief without obedience, no obedience without belief. So we can say that. Question. Do you trust Jesus as your high priest? The source of your eternal salvation do you believe God exists? And that you must be accepted by him to have life? Do you believe that this Jesus is the very one who stands before you so that when he goes on your behalf and mentions your name in heaven, that he has died for your sins 
And that God turns then to you and look and says, I accept you. Your sins are forgiven. You belong to me. Do you understand in all of that, that, that now you're on this journey of being transformed in the very likeness of Christ to talk like him, to think like him, to have his character built within you? Is, is he the very focus of, of your life? Do you trust him? And the question then, follow would be, if you don't, why not? And if you're struggling, why? Look at how he represents us. Look at how he prays with his heart bleeding for us. With, with loud cries and tears as he faces what we should face. He took all of that so that we don't have to. Why would you not trust him? I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at Jesus as I think about him. I'm captivated by him when I, when I ponder who he is because here he is, a, a man. He looks like us, like any other man. He has hair and a nose and eyes and hands and feet and he breathes and all of that. He eats, he sleeps, he talks, he walks, he laughs, he cries. He does everything like a human being. But he's so different in another sense in his perfection, in his devotion. He's just like, I should be, but I'm not. He's our high priest. Trust him, let's pray. Father, I do pray for me and for us that you would work these sentences you would take words on a page off the page into our minds, hearts, deep within. That this word that is alive would live in us and we would know we have a high priest. And he is the source of not life just today, but our eternal salvation. And that we would submit our whole lives to him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. If you do, I remind you that there will be elders to pray with you uh, in the office area after the service, so please take advantage of that. Also, I remind you that the response to our benediction is this. Jesus is our high priest. Amen. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord and all God's people said, Jesus is our high priest. Amen.